0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: Thank you so much. And it's uh, really an honor and a treat to uh, to, to be here. So thank you. Um, uh, thank you for the warm uh, welcome. Thank you for the invitation, Rav Shmuley, and um, and really great uh, to be able to uh, to study uh, with you tonight. So our topic for tonight is uh, discovering the divine in the natural world, spirituality, mysticism, and uh, nature. A pretty a pretty good. Uh, setting for it, you might you might say, uh, given that I, given that I, I just came back from a couple of days hiking in Sedona, um, and uh, and I'm and uh, so I was I was deeply conscious of the correlations. I don't have to tell uh, um, all of you about about that, uh, um, but it was um, it was very uh, mystically spiritually uh, stirring um, for me. Um, and, and actually climbing Cathedral Rock, which I, which I did uh, on Friday, uh, made me also think about uh, the, the famous American naturalist, John Muir, who many of you uh, may know about, um, who wrote about the wilderness, the experience of the wilderness, as entering into a zone of the sacred, Right. There, there are actually a, a, a good number of, um, of naturalist writers, poets, essayists, and others who, um, who really gravitate toward or really um, reflect uh, recurrently on the way in which an experience with um, nature, with the natural world, with wilderness... Um, dovetails and generates a sense of spiritual uh, presence, a sense of openness um, uh, to the divine. So John Muir in his writings, and there he's specifically uh, mostly talking about, or at least in that, con- in that context where it's drawn from, uh, the, uh, the mountains of California, uh, but it, it also very much I think applies um, uh, to Arizona and, and elsewhere, and just in, in general, the question of what is the relationship between the natural world and theology or an encounter with God and spirituality. And, and Muir there speaks about um, the wilderness as itself a kind of cathedral, right? thinking about cathedral rock. But there he speaks about the redwoods of California as, like as the pillars of a kind of ancient temple, as all the elements uh, of uh, the natural world, um, as singing together in in a state of great uh, harmony, uh, together in praise of divinity, in praise of the divine, um, and um, and when we think of, of Muir in the uh, in the nineteenth uh, century. Um, we also we also think of um, the writings of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who had a very big uh, impact on me as well. And I think this relates very um, strikingly to some of the Jewish material that we're going to uh, get to very, uh, very shortly. Um, but this idea of wilderness as cathedral or wilderness nature as a as a space in which a um, a sense of holiness, a sense of divine presence, an opening of the heart and of the soul and of the mind um, to the divine, um, also very much appears in um, in Emerson's writings. And and here if you look at the very back of, of your packet, just to just to begin at the to begin at the end and to go back to the beginning as the great um, mystical work, Sefer Yetzirah said, the end is bound to the beginning and the beginning is bound to the end. So here in this context, Emerson, um, himself, I think, a kind of a kind of mystic, um, characterizes the way in which an entrance into wilderness um, becomes a moment of mystical attachment to the divine, or in his words, um, a way in which the currents of the universal being flow through him, and we'll we'll uh, we'll look at that momentarily. But he speaks about this in terms of solitude, right? And we look at the this this middle uh, middle paragraph here to go into solitude. Right here, he's first talking about right why why should, why why should we only speak about our relationship to the divine? through tradition, right, through a sense of received history. Uh, And certainly, um, especially in the Jewish tradition, but not only in the Jewish tradition, that sense of tradition, that sense of of history um, and connectedness to previous generations is, um, is, is crucial. But Emerson placed a great emphasis on the immediacy of the encounter with with uh, the numinous and the immediacy of a person's encounter with God as itself a kind of imperative. But he speaks about this in terms of solitude and, and uh, a process of, of, of going out into the wild or into, the, into nature by oneself. But he says it in a particularly compelling way. Would, would anyone uh, like to volunteer to read um, that middle... Paragraph for us out loud please
2: to go into solitude a man needs to retire as much from his chamber as from society I am not Solitary whilst I read and write though. Nobody is with me But if a man would be alone let him look at the stars The rays that come from those heavenly worlds will separate between him and what he touches The stars awaken a certain reverence because though always present they are inaccessible
1: so let's, let's pause there for a moment, thank you. So, so here, um, Emerson speaks about the power of uh, not just being alone, but a sense of communing with the mystery of the natural world. And, we, and, and as I'll mention momentarily, this has actually very interesting correlations to another 19th century um, thinker, Rabbi Nachman of a little a little earlier, uh, then, uh Emerson, a Hasidic master from Eastern Europe, who specifically spoke about the power of what he called bojdu like a a going into seclusion, which also very much involved a communing with the natural so i 'll mention, m- mention that um, in, more specifically i 'll quote from it in just a moment so you have some, you have some sections in there in in the, in the source packet but here the sense in which Solitude is not just a state of being alone, but is a state of direct communion with the divine, the spiritual energy of all in wilderness, in the natural um, world, right? It's not just that nobody is with me, but it's about going out to be with the spiritual presence of the natural uh, world. And as he goes on to say in the, ne- in the next paragraph here, um, th- those moments in the wild lead him to a state of mystical exhilaration and mystical transformation. Perhaps you read that for us. Not the sun.
2: Not the sun or the summer alone, but every hour and season yields its tribute of delight. For every hour and change corresponds to and authorizes a different state of the mind. Crossing a bare common in snow puddles, at twilight, under a clouded sky, without having in my thoughts any occurrence of special good fortune, I have enjoyed a perfect exhilaration. In the woods, we return to reason and faith. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universe, universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God.
1: So one of my um, proudest moments, tongue-in-cheek, as a father, was when I was able to convince my daughter, this was already five years ago, now she's almost 16, she wouldn't have done this uh, today, uh, we went on a creek walk um, and we were walking through uh, right, walking through the stream and over the stones and so forth, and I carried with me in my backpack um, a copy of uh, Emerson's Nature and somehow convinced her to recite this part of, uh, of Nature out loud in a kind of dramatic uh, reading. Sort of think about Emerson and his... Becoming a transparent eyeball, right, and the oddity of that image, Um, but there's a kind of uh, mystical um, passivity in in a kind of positive sense. Right, I've been overtaken by the divine presence. Right, I become like the like certain Jewish mystics say. I become like the shofar, right, and the air that is blown through the shofar is like the divine breath that enunciates this primal sound of divinity in the world. Right? The, the currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am nothing. I see all. I am part or particle of God. This kind of mystical language of, of oneness and of absorption of the ego into a totalizing unity of divinity... Is something that we see across religious cultures and very much in the Jewish tradition um, as well. And specifically this idea of all mean egotism vanishing, right? That sense of what it is to commune with the natural in a sense of, the, of its sacredness, becomes a kind of mystical erasure of my um, puffed up self selfhood, right or all the ways in which um, I want recognition, or I feel slighted, or, or my pride, my ego, and so forth, right, which everybody um, struggles with, right? So the sense is that by, by somehow communing through the purity of the wild, divinity uh, absorbs that sense of ego um, into it. Uh, now, just to correlate this idea, though, specifically of, of solitude, again to Nachman of Bratislav, and specifically, the idea, uh, this is, uh, Nachan Bratislav was the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. Um, He died uh, in 18, um, 1811, um, and uh, so we're talking about late 18th, early 19th century, um, present-day Ukraine. Um, and he specifically spoke about the significance of solitude. And of the need to not only have times of prayer in community, and, and he was still a very traditional Jew and was still davening, shacharit minchamariv, right, every day and, and, and often ideally in community with a minion, but he also specifically um, instructed his disciples to go out. Into, um, into the natural world, ideally, and to be alone with one's heart and with God and to pour out one's emotions, one's soul, one's inner feelings and yearnings and regrets to God in a kind of direct speech. And he said that that speech should be, should be done in the vernacular. It should actually be done in Yiddish or, or, or in, in whichever, whichever language One speaks instinctively. But in that context, he specifically says that that conversation, right, that conversation of the heart with God is enriched, is raised up. That prayer is enabled in a different kind of way, is opened in a different kind of way through connection to the the sadeh, right, the field. This is just in Hebrew on page 14, so I'm just going to be translating it out loud so you don't necessarily follow along there. All right, so he specifically said that one needs to commune with the different elements of, uh, of the natural world, with the fields, with the grasses, with the trees, and that by... Harnessing the power of the of that natural realm, one's prayer will be enhanced. Which really reminds me, actually, of something I was just reading about um, uh, uh, b- about the meditative power of Sedona. That certain parts of Sedona, in particular, um, enable prayer more readily. Right? It's the idea that that by being in connection with with a, with certain spaces that have powerful spiritual energy to them, that one is, one's heart is opened more readily uh, in prayer than it might otherwise be, right? It's another way of saying um, that I tap into the, the vibrations of the natural world and it opens me up in a different way, right? As he says here, <clears throat> It's very good to pray and to draw out one's conversation, one's speech before God. In a field among grasses and trees. Because when a person... Praise and draws out their speech to God in a field, Azai Asabim, then all of the blades of grass, the and the whole the, the whole life of vegetation of um, of of the field, but it's also hasade in the sense of a kind of Speech of the field, kulam ba'im all of those things of, of the natural realm they enter into the person's prayer. lo, and they help the person in prayer. Vino'tnin lo, koach and they give that person. Strength and energy in their prayer and their speech before God. All right, so it's this is this is a somewhat a different uh, different version than what we saw in in uh, in Emerson. Though elsewhere Nachon of Bratislav also speaks in highly unitive mystical terms. Right, that by engaging in this practice, one will ultimately be absorbed into divinity, and there will be a betool, a nullification. Of one's yesh, of one's thisness, and of one's ego, and so on and so forth, right? And, and that I'll be able to purify my emotions and transcend my ordinary selfhood, right? Perhaps in the same way that Il Chili speaks about Cathedral Rock as having the power to purify subsurface emotions and spiritual energies. So, what does it mean, right? First, first we might ask, why is it that the spiritual heart, that the soul, is drawn to wilderness, is drawn to nature? And why does it open us in the way that it does? Right? Why, what is it about that setting? Um, and uh, for, someone like, for someone like Nachman of Bratislav or for the other mystics we're going to talk about, it's precisely because God's presence, God's imminence, is, is radically present, right is, is, is infuses all aspects and elements of this natural realm. God is not just transcendent in the high realms beyond. but God is right here, right now, in the earth, in your heart. God is in this world in a highly radical way, even to the point that some of these mystics say that actually, as Levi Yitzchak Berdichev uh, con- roughly a contemporary of Nachman of says, says, there's another passage that's, that's in here in his commentary on Breshit, on Genesis, he says that God created everything and God is everything. HaKadosh Baruch Hu vehu hakol extraordinary, ra- extraordinarily radical statement, right? God created everything and is everything. So to some extent, when I'm in one state of consciousness, I'm aware of the createdness of this world as a separate entity, and when I get to this higher level of mystical consciousness, of a kind of erasure of ego, then I'm able to see that God is actually everything, and I am part of that, everything. Just like Emerson says in his, speaking from his tradition, I am part and particle of God. The currents of the universal being flow through me. And here, Nacho Nebratsev is specifically saying that by connecting to the energies, the ways in which God is present in all of these elements of nature and elsewhere. Uh, both above here and elsewhere, uh, Rebbe Nachman also says that part of the task is to, a, is to attune oneself, is to align one's mind with the inner melody, the inner unique melodies of each element of the natural world. Right? That each blade of grass, each red rock, each tree has its own spiritual melody. That we need to learn to hear, right? And there's a sense of when you're walking in wilderness. There's a sense of if you can quiet, um, the, if you can quiet everything else, and you can just attune yourself to the melody. Right? It's both the the actual physical melody, but then there's a sense that there's some that there are spiritual vibrations of divinity that are running through that that myriad, that manifold nature of of reality as we perceive it, and when I can get in touch with that inner nigun, as Nachman says, then I can attach myself basically to the soul or the heart of that element of nature. Sure, sure, Rav I
0: wonder how much of of this is a product of modernity or, or the advent of modernity with the urbanization that emerges where it's more difficult to find quiet. I wonder, in premodernity, the palace is more grand, to some place where, there, where there's noise and grandeur. But once everything becomes noisy, we're, we're longing for solitude and escape. Is that accurate or not? Or do you see this nature playing out? well?
1: So I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question because it actually is a perfect segue into the jumping back in time to the, to the medieval Kabbalistic material. Because, because my the, the, really at the very core of the point that, that, I, that I want to make is uh, that this is very much um, in the thoughts and, and in the heart of mystics in pre-modernity, um, including specifically in the Zohar, in the, the, the great masterpiece of Kabbalah of late thirteenth century, early fourteenth century Spain, and also in the uh, and also in the thinker Rabbi uh, Isaac of Akko, selections of which we have we have in here, and it extends beyond there. So, so and, and so the and so the. Your, your question uh, uh, aligns this really really nicely in the sense that let's... We've, so we first, we first go back to the Zohar, right? The first look to, the, to this great monument of Jewish mystical literature. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of a passage, a um, really extraordinary passage, text from the Zohar that I discuss in, in my new book, The Art of Mystical Narrative, about the experience of sitting beneath a tree. So in the Zohar, we have, um, we have uh, qu- quite a lot of different things, but one of, the, one of the main strands of genre in the Zohar is, is a, a tale of a wandering band of mystical disciples through a, kind of, through a fictionalized Galilee. Right? And it's this, it's, they're the disciples of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, the great mystic sage, and they are wandering about the Galilee in quest of mystical wisdom. And it's, of course, a lot more complicated than that, but, but, but in terms of understanding where this tale emerges from. And so in this context, right, so they're, they're on this, this mystical quest, and they expound in lengthy ways on, on mystical secrets of theology and nature of, of myth and divine reality, as they go on this quest. So in one particular scene, they find themselves seated beneath the shade of a tree overlooking the Sea of Galilee, or what they called Yama de Ginosar, which is an ancient way of saying uh, what what in later later times came to be known as as Yam Kinneret, or the Sea of Galilee. And they were sitting beneath the shade of a tree overlooking on the the shores of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. So you can sort of Picture the scene of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his disciples. And Rabbi Shimon says this amazing thing, which is actually a kind of wink at the the existing Mishnah on the subject, which he theoretically is from the same same time period of, but the Zohar is a fictionalized version of these characters. And he says, How lovely is the shade of this tree! Let us crown this place with words of Torah. Which, for someone who knows um, Pirkei Avot, who knows Mishnah and Avot, you uh, you know that it specifically says you should not interrupt your Mishnah study or your recitation of the Mishnah um, when you see a beautiful, to say, how lovely is, is, is this tree, uh, and so on and so forth, right? And, and the Mishnah there actually says, you do that and you're going to be zapped, which basically means, right, you're going you're to get the death penalty. All right, so this does not seem to be like an actual embrace of pausing your, your Torah study to engage with the natural world. There have been others who have said, well, the Mishnah might not really mean that. And blah, blah, blah. But it says it more or less in that way. And Rabbi Shimon of the Zohar says this amazing thing. He uses the same language, but he flips it on its head and said, how lovely is the shade of this tree. Let us crown this place with words of Torah, saying, yeah, you know, actual Tanaitic Mishnah sages. And let me tell you how it's, how, it, how it's really done, right? And this is a very powerful moment because he goes on to say, in addition to that kind of flipping of, of the Mishnah, which his readers would certainly have been familiar with, like, like many of us would be familiar with it. He goes on to talk about how this tree, as in, in, as in the Kabbalistic sense, in, in the Zoharic sense, everything that exists in this world is an allusion to a mystery within God, right? Heschel uh, famously said this world is an allusion, right? And he was playing on... It's not an illusion, it's an allusion. Um, and he spoke about mystery and about wonder, and, and Heschel was a mystic, Heschel was a chassid, Heschel knew all of this, right? And there's been interesting things written about that. This world is an allusion to the divine realm. Um, or in the language of the Zoharis Aramaic, Alma tata'a ke gavna alma de la'elah. <laughs> The world below exists on the model of the world on high, and so therefore, when I encounter anything, in, any of the particulars of this world, it should bring to mind a, mis- a corresponding mystery within the divine realms above. Now there you might say, well, that's a little different from the later Hasidic thinking about God is radically in this world, and and the Zoharic and, and Kabbalistic masters also spoke about a total unity, but they were also very interested in how our perception in this world teaches us something that we otherwise can't know directly about the inner mysteries of God. So what does this mean when I'm sitting beneath the tree? Well, this tree, Rabbi Shimon goes on to say, reminds me. He doesn't say it quite that way, but it, it reminds me of the Ilana de Chaye de Ginta de Eden de La Ela. It reminds me of the tree of life from the upper garden of Eden, which is basically a part of God in in the Zohar's imagination. And he goes on to deliver this amazing mystical midrash, which is playing on on phrasing from the Bible that says that King Solomon built a pavilion, a royal pavilion, out of the cedars of Lebanon, right? Made an apirion, which is a kind of, right, a a, a space, a royal pavilion, a traveling pavilion, out of the trees, right? And so this, this is where his mind is going, right? They he said, bah, but this is really teaching us about the Apirion above. This is teaching us about the pavilion above, which is a, a part of divinity that's called the Apirion. And that correlates to this and that. He starts going on a whole theological stream of consciousness and, and, this, and this rich mythic construction of divinity, ultimately leading um, his son and disciple Rabbi Elazar to say, as they are getting up from the tree, he says, Abba, ad, hashta, hava, Havina yatve, betzila, de ginta, de eden. Right? Um, and, uh, if, in case your Zoharic Aramaic is a little rusty, that means, <laughs> just in case, um, um by the way, you know that you spent a lot of time with the Zohar. When, when, uh, I, when I came to write the dedication page for my book, which this is, the book was dedicated to my father, um, I ended up writing the page in Zoharic Aramaic, not a quote from the Zohar. Um, and, 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 but, you know, very few people know that. So now you're in on the secret. Um, and I cited actually that line, right? It says that, that Father, behold we have been sitting under the tree of the garden of eden this tree is the ilana dechai de gintade is the tree of life of the garden of eden and it corresponds to an upper more transcendent mystery but it's also this tree itself this part of the natural world is in a deep mysterious sense one of the trees of the garden of eden And he says that, and 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 we think of the opening statement of Rabbi Shimon, where he says that, um, where he says that now, right? How lovely is the shade of this tree? I have a kind of pleasurable sensation of the natural world, and now let me. We need to crown this place with words of Torah, right? So, so there's a way by speaking Torah, and but for for them that meant mystical Torah, in this space. I kind of attach a new spiritual crown to it, right? It's a kind of their way of, of drawing in divine presence. And now that they've done that, as they walk on the way, they think of, of how they must protect this tree, right? This is what Rabbi Elazar says. He says, now that we're walking, um, let us walk in ways that will guard um, this tree. Uh, so, so already in the Zohar, already in the Zohar and I actually have a whole section on this in, in the Art of Mystical Narrative, on the on encounters with the natural world as a kind of stimulus for the mystical imagination. And I guess I was really interested in that because I also have a section in my first book on encounters with the natural world, but they're different. Um, and that's the section that we have, we have in here that we're going to turn to in a second from Isaac of Akko. So in the Zohar... The experience, it's, it's de- the, the experience of the mystics is deeply anchored in the outdoors, first of all, right? And this, this relates to this question of nature um, in important ways because, because one of the ways in which the Zohar is quite unique is, the, is it's the story of these companions, of this mystical teacher and his disciples wandering along the way outside. Right? They're, they're not inside a Beit Midrash. They are outside. Right, The outdoors is their Beit Midrash. Occasionally they stop for a night at a roadside inn or they end up here or there. But the real recurrent terrain of the scenes um, is the road or the pathway. And, and, and we, they came to this bay Chaka, they came to this field and they sat down and they prayed, and so on and, and so forth. They were walking along the way, and they said to one another. So there's a kind of sense in which mystical Torah has, has been taken outdoors. And, um, and, and, this, and, and there are a number of different kinds of examples like this where they encounter shootings, shooting stars, and this makes them think about different dynamics within the inner mysteries uh, of God. So it's very much the case, I would say, for the Zohar that... Um, the experience with the earthly, the experience with the earthy becomes a direct line to spiritual consciousness that there is a sense as I said before there's a sense that everything that I encounter in this world, the alma tata'a, the lower world, is a reflection, is an illusion of the alma ilaa, of the world within the divine mystery, right? So that means that when I encounter something Along the way, it becomes a kind of contemplative spiritual process whereby I am opened up into a different kind of theological consciousness and awareness. I come to understand another mystery of God's self and my relationship to God through the prompt of the earthy experience. Now I want to show you also, so we can be looking at a specific text instead of me telling you about that text. That text, that, te- that text, that text I just paraphrased is in chapter two of the of the book of, of the Art of Mystical Narrative. This uh, section um, is is at the beginning of our of of your, of your printed packet, and it's and it's actually from from my first book as Light Before Dawn: The Inner World of a Medieval Cabalist. And the Cabalist in question was Isaac. Ben Samuel of Akko, very um, fascinating mystic from the turn of the 14th century, who seems to have had some interaction with some of the authors of the Zohar, perhaps, and he's also very unique because he speaks in an autobiographical voice many times, or I had such and such an experience, which is very unusual for Jewish mystics. But the reason we're, looking, we're specifically interested here um, is how he talks about his wandering in nature and how that leads him to a certain kind of God consciousness, a certain kind of theological thinking, right? which for the Kabbalist, meant, how does this correlate to this sfirah, or this group of sphirot sphirot are the different emanations of the one God. The Kabbalists believed that there were ten streaming emanations of God that are actually that are actually one, and they have different symbols and different names and so on and so forth. Okay.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: So let's turn. Uh, It's page two in the packet, page 119 in the book, um, the, section, the, the, text, the cited text that starts um, with, I was contemplating. Um, we're not going to look at it directly, but on the facing page, if you, wanna, if you want a really interesting um, kavanah or intention for gazing at flowers, we we'll take a look at that one later. Um, so who'd like to, uh, to read for us here? You, you don't need to read the Hebrew in the brackets. Uh, I, can, I can do that, or we can skip over it either way. I was contemplating. Who's feeling... Who's channeling Yitzchak Demin Akko tonight?
3: I was contemplating or gazing at a tall mountain, and I saw a secret in the color blue. Hmm. The secret is that you should know the world... Uh,
1: the word... Uh, T'chelet. Paradise, literally blue, is the language of completion and perfection. Lashon tachlit u-shlemut. I'm saying that because... Because it's about the significance of the relation between the word tachelot and tachlit. So let's even before we get before we read any further, right? Um, just in the first couple of lines, what do you what do you already notice? He's looking below the
4: surface level of the color
1: blue to see something deeper. Yes, very nice, right? And um, and and his, and that emerges. Absolutely right. So when he says "raiti sod I saw a secret in the color blue, right? So on the one hand, he's contemplating or looking at with a contemplative, meditative eye a tall mountain. And when he says, so first of all, we see him in nature, looking at, looking at a mountain, right? So there's already a kind of situatedness in wilderness or situatedness in in. The presence of the mountain, and I saw secret in the color blue, which, which would seem to uh, imply that the mountain is bathed in blue, right? Why? Why else was he thinking about blue, right?
5: Can't help but think about. He's, he's looking at this tall mountain, but what is he actually seeing beyond the mountain? He's seeing the sky, and so is the. Is it, is it some type of signal to him that? That blue is encompassing everything. So he was he was noticing the mountain and how big it was, but then he noticed that the sky was even bigger than that, and so that must be complete somehow.
1: It's it's quite it's quite possible, um, and and we'll and we'll see um, we'll see further. Um, his associations to, to this issue of Takhlip, tach- of I, th- I think that's, that's certainly possible, right? So, so it could be the blue of the sky. It could be the way in which the light is casting itself on the mountain. But something leads him to think about the color blue and to think about its deeper mystical significance and, and as you just said, right, the, how it gestures toward completion and unity, which is actually a play on... The word tachelat and the word tachlite. Tachlite means kind of completion, perfection, goal. Um, but but uh, and and as you're going to see, is both a color that's seen in the natural world, but it's also um, a strand of the tzitzit, right? For in, in, in especially in, in particular. Um, usages of the tradition. He's going to go on to say this, right? So this leads him to a whole series of interesting associations to the life of mitzvot, the wearing of tzitzit, to the color that he sees in the natural world, and to what's symbolized by blue and by tahlit, which is shekhinah, we're gonna see, right? That's the, the tenth sefirah, the, the, um, the, cent- the center of femininity within divinity. Um, I saw a secret in the color blue. Um, The secret is... Oh, you already did that, right? The secret is you should know that the word t'chelet is the language of completion and perfection, right? So t'chelet is t'chlit. Now, the other reason why this is significant, and we're going to see this in in, in the coming lines, is that what's the difference between the word t'chelet and t'chlit in terms of its spelling? Which, what letter... um, is, is in one that is not in the other? The Yud, right. Um, and for the Kabbalist, you say Yud, and they immediately think of the ten, right? Because Yud is numerically stands for ten, the ten spherot, the ten dimensions of God. So what does that mean? And also blue typically symbolizes Shekhinah in Kabbalistic symbolism. She's, all, she's the great... Uh, ocean that receives all the rivers that flow into her into the oneness of water, so, and water is often seen as blue, and so on, and so forth. But also, as Tachlit, she is the dimension of divinity that receives and, and con- where all ten, including herself, converge as one in the state of completion. So, she is Tachlit because she is the blue that contains all the ten. Of divinity, and of course the Kabbalists will say, even though I'm going on and on about this one and that one and ten, they're all one, right? And this is a refrain over and over again that uh, Jewish mystics say, not unlike the way Christian theologians and Christian mystics say that the three are really one, right? So actually understanding that when these kinds of mystics speak about multiplicity, they are actually often insisting on a a unity beneath the multiplicity, which I think is actually a reflection in some ways of, of how the mystic experiences the world, right? The mystic experiences the world like we all do as made up of all these fragments and all these and separateness, right? But deep within the kishkas of the mystic, right? Whether Jewish or not Jewish, right? Um, is this powerful, passionate feeling that everything is one, right? We see this across... Religious cultures, so there's a kind of almost universal uh, mystical experience uh, that 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 argues that actually the reality you perceive as separate is actually one, and that oneness is God. So in this case, right, what is the theological consciousness that's prompted by an experience of nature? It is an is associ- all those associations, right? It's about. Shekhinah as, as the dimension of God that is the, that is the axis of revelation for, for, for the human mind. Right? Shekhinah is the way in which God becomes revealed. And God becomes revealed by as Kohelet said, all the rivers run to the sea. All the rivers are the different dimensions of the Svirot and they converge in the Yamarava, in the great sea that is Shekhinah. And all the waters of the world are actually one, as we know, right? They're all interconnected, right? So all those waters, all those seemingly separate streams, seemingly separate lakes, and so on and so forth, they are all actually just one body of water, just as God is one organism of life that manifests in many different ways. And also this... Techelet and Tachlit, it says, and Tachelet is also, JT, continue reading.
3: is also the language of yearning. Uh, I warm, I yearn for the courts of the Tachlit. This is to say, my soul yearns for the sepira called perfection, Tachlit, which includes all the other colors within.
1: So that so that's significant, right? So that, so it includes all all the other colors within it, right? So so my soul. You, what, so what is techelet teaching me by looking at the blue? What is what is it teaching me in this in in this context, right? So how is how is that part of the spiritual experience of nature for Isaac Avako? Yes, and, and absolutely, and yearning for, for for what, what would we say? For God. For God in this case, right, so certainly for God and and for specifically for Shekhinah, because she is right, she is the convergence that includes she's the tahit that includes all the other colors within her. Right? It's through Shekhinah that I can see all of the other colors of divinity, the Kabbalists say. So I, my heart is yearning for Shekhinah because Shekhinah is my portal into the totality of the oneness of God, which has all of these different colors. And they manifest in Shekhinah like the way the prism refracts all of these different colors or the way the hidden white light is opened into, this, into the spectrum of color, right? But it's really just the white light, but it becomes revealed in that, in that multiplicity. So, I'm, so there's a kind of theological consciousness, a God consciousness, that emerges out of the spiritual contemplation of one's situatedness, one's experience in nature. Please.
3: Yeah, aren't, aren't there links between up and the wisdom principle of the Proverbs, like in Proverbs eight? Are they pretty much the same, or at least they're intertwined somehow, or they're related? Because then you know. I don't know whether Philo does, but the Christians then have this idea of that becoming the, rendered as the Logos, you know, with the various Logi, the words, yes. of reflecting the one great word.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and this and so so that, so that particular tradition, right, of Chochmah, of Logos, of, of the word of God, right, which manifests at the beginning of the Gospel of John, um, and is and is also found in early rabbinic midrashim. So Daniel Boyarin, in his book Borderlines, has shown in a very interesting way how logos theology, in particular, this idea of the divine word as the beginning of, of creation and as that which runs through all of creation, was a kind of midrash of Judeo Christianity. Right. So in other words, this was that's a manifestation, actually, of of an idea that was that was reverberating among uh, early Christians and early rabbis who were sort of, who were, who were aligned with, right, who were connected in terms of their larger stream of, of, of traditions. So in the sense of, but in the sense of what you picked up on, right, of, of uh, Proverbs 8 as this great moment where Lady Wisdom, right, Lady Wisdom is, is speaking, right, and, um, and she's also saying, right? Adonai Kanani God created me at the beginning of God's way. <clears throat> so part of this is it's, it, it, it. It appears in in the Kabbalistic sources in a couple of different ways, uh, but it's both Shekhinah and the dimension of uh, upper femininity, which is Bina, in which in, in the way this is talked about, because. Because Chokhmah is the second sphira and Bina is the third. But it's so, so it's part so it's part of that larger, it's part of that larger theology for sure. It's connected to it in the sense that she is lower wisdom. Thank you. Yeah,
3: this, I love this. Stuff. What did you say the book,
1: the book borderline, the borderline Boyarin, uh, B-O-Y-A-R-I-N, Daniel Boyarin. That book is called Borderlines: The Partition of Judeo-Christianity. Oh. <clears throat> I think it was published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, so, for, so, 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 so further thoughts about this, both both in terms of what, 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 um, what I paraphrase from the Zohar and what you see here. How does the Kabbalist, at least as represented in those examples, um, experience God through nature? How would you restate it, or, or, or? Um, extrapolate. Doesn't have a little bit of the element of Heschel when Heschel talks about awe, and obviously awe meaning somehow or other <coughs> you realize there's something more in, your, yeah. in what you're seeing, but
3: you should be capable of feeling of recognizing that it's there.
1: Yes, ab- absolutely. Um and um cause mentioning before I, I think that you know a lot a lot of Heschel's um some of Heschel's most evocative uh, spiritual formulations about those types of experiences—they were—they were distinctive to him. There's no question. But, but if we kind of trace his influences, um, he, he was a, also a deep reader of, of Hasidic texts and of and of and of uh, Kabbalistic texts as as well. So that that experience, um, in in that respect, that's one of the ways in which we can characterize Heschel as as a mystic. Um, Actually, my my office at, at JTS is a couple doors down from Heschel's old office. So I have that that I can I can feel the ghosts of old uh, wandering around. <clears throat> um, but there, that very much is, I think, part of the mystical uh, sensibility, which is which, exactly what you're saying, right? I I stand before my experience in this world, and it evokes this wonderment. This sense of mystery that that is, was true of so uh, was true of of so many other mystics, which is to say, um, I, I I I am haunted by the sensation that there is something more to reality than what I perceive at first glance, right? Or that ra'iti sod betok. I saw a secret within it. I I am not I am not. Um, satisfied with the sense that the literal surface level of perception is all that there is, but that there is a deeper meaning. And for the Kabbalists, that deeper meaning is the way in which the divine reality, the inner mysteries of God, are encoded, are inscribed in the natural world, such that by contemplating those Things in this world, I'm brought into that realm of awe, that realm of wonderment, that realm of mystery that is beyond the literal, right? So there's a kind of interpretation that's taking place. It's almost as if the natural world is a kind of sacred text for the mystic, and that that as a mystic, I stand before this world and I and I read it not at the, the literal level, at the pshat level, but rather I read it at the sod level, at the hidden secret mystery level. And I'm able to see how there's a kind of symbolic subsurface meaning to reality, such that when I, such that when I sit beneath the tree, when I, when I pray among the grasses, when I s- contemplate the mountains, my mind is drawn to their transcendent divine meanings, right? Such that then my earthly experience becomes suffused with God consciousness and of the sacred.
4: Please. Uh, Gershom Sholem uses an analogy that's very helpful to me, and I offer it because it may be helpful to others. Could I jump in for a little more water? Tree. Thank you. Metaphor of a tree as uh, as our physical world and he talks about what it is that is the source of the life of that tree which is the sap and the sap is in an imperfect metaphor as everything is when you're talking at this level the sap is colorless, it's odorless, you, you, you can't make any sense of it but it is the essence of the tree, and the sap manifests as the tree grows into brown and bark and hardness at the bottom, and then to green leaves at the top, and flowers and this and that. And, and to most of us, when we look at a tree, we say, Oh, well, this is the, the trunk is different from the leaves, which are different from the flowers, which are different from the thorns. But what is it that is the essence of all of it? It's the sap. So when you say, Dr. Fishbane, how do how do the how do the mystics look at the world? The mystics perhaps see the essence of the sap shining through. They're not overwhelmed with the differences uh, of the different aspects of the tree. Um,
1: be- beautif- beautifully said. Um, thank you for sharing that. And you know, I'm reminded of. Um some pictures that I took and some, some things that I saw on, on my climb up Cathedral Rock, where you see some really unusual looking trees. Um, right? They're particularly, I believe, the yucca tree and, and some other things. Um, and tree symbolism, right? It's not just that the tree was one of many different parts of nature. You're very right to center on that. And, and, and this is why this was so significant for the Zoharic Kabbalists sitting beneath the tree. Because for them, the Ilana Dechaye or the Eitz the Chaim, the tree of life, is a, is a metaphor or a symbol or a way of um, talking about the very interconnected reality of God. Right? So God is the upper tree of life. And that tree, as you said, right, it has, it has a central column of energy, Right? and it branches out into all of these different strands and branches, and those branches give, give, give leaves or buds or fruits and so on and so forth. Right? So there's, there are many different parts to the tree, but they are all really part of the one. Right? So this was a very powerful image for the Kabbalists as a way of talking about God's self. And they spoke about, many Kabbalists spoke about the whole System of the Sfirot, which is basically another way of saying about the elements of God, of the one God, were all, were characterized as the tree, as an ilan. And in some early Kabbalistic texts, and this is quite a powerful image, they speak about this also as an inverted cosmic tree, right? So you sort of say, that, where is the deepest secret of the tree? It's in the roots beneath the soil. Right? But in this image, the root, the root of the inverted tree, right, the roots and the, the soil is the soil of the mystery of heaven. And the roots that extend into there extend into the mystery of the infinite. And they draw the energies of that, of that upper force of infinity, which is the endlessness of God, but is beyond our comprehension. That flows into into the roots and nourishes the trunk of the tree, which is the the trunk of divine reality as it flows through the cosmos. And it spreads out in all of these different ways and branches and we, in our world, we can, we we experience the fruits and the blossoms and the leaves. Those are, right, it's the upside down tree. Those are the most revealed parts of the divine tree, of the tree that is all, as the Bahir says, one of the early, earliest Kabbalistic texts, and the tree that is the all of divinity, God which is the all. So this is actually, I think, a very, a very important uh, image which kind of uh, crystallizes or, or bring, brings to, into focus our question, right? which is to say that, that, that when the mystic, when the Kabbalists saw... A tree in this world and they saw them all the time this was a kind of symbolic referent in the mind it's both that this is the tree of the Garden of Eden on the one hand right that I experience this natural realm as part of the divine energy but it also takes my contemplative meditative mind to a different place of knowing and feeling divinity because God in a macro sense is the grand tree of the universe and we in our finite, mortal, limited um, state of reality, right? We're sort of the below transcendence. We, we are that, that hidden mystery of the soil of, of the infinite, right, or of the soil of heaven, or the, where the roots are concealed beneath the surface. We can experience the revelation through through those blossoms and those tree those fruits and those leaves and and so forth right so it becomes so for the mystic it becomes a kind of as i was saying before a kind of interpretive consciousness of of unveiling right or of lifting the veil of reality and being able to say that where i thought there was just was just a tree or was just just a field it teaches me that it's actually connected to something much larger. It's connected to a, a, a transcendent mystery of God, right? Which is very much uh, uh, like what Heschel was saying, right? And Heschel was influenced by that older tradition. That it, it, it brings me into a state of wonderment and a state of contemplative awareness such that my experience of, of earthiness, opens me into a state of spiritual and theological transcendence. You might say um, similar uh, to the way poetry takes us beyond the prose of reason or the prose of, of a certain type of ordered language into a realm of the ineffable or at least gesturing toward the ineffable. Right? And has the power to open open our imaginations, open our hearts to that sense of the sublime. right? And that sense of the sublime, of that radical mystery of being is, um, is, is in, in some ways, what poetry and mysticism have deeply in common, right? It's that It's that I'm suddenly opened to the presence of the sacred, the presence of God, where I didn't realize it was there before, right? And and thereby, my experience of the ordinary becomes infused with the numinous, right? With the wondrous sacred. And my experience of, of the earth and of the natural world becomes a realization of the radical... And, and utter interconnectedness of all reality, as the mystics would understand it, that ultimately I become open into the fact that all of reality is the divine tree. In fact, I am part of the divine tree. Uh, you had mentioned uh, earlier the, some, of the, some of the older traditions regarding divine creation. And I'll just paraphrase <coughs> I'll paraphrase briefly a couple of the other texts. I mentioned... Um, the Levi Yitzchak of Berditchev piece um, about God bara hakol vehu hakol, God created everything and is everything. And, um, and that's what it means. That's what it means, Levi Yitzchak of Berditchev, the Kedushat Levi says. That's what it means to... to that's why we recite in, the, in, the, in Shacharit, in the morning prayers, that's why we recite... Yotzer or uvorei Choshech, right? Who creates dark, or forms um, forms light and creates darkness, right? And that in itself is a is a rewrite of the of 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 the original biblical text. But there, it's, it it creates or forms in the present tense, right? Why does it say Yotzer and Bore and not Yatsar and Bara, right? And he says that basically what, what that, and you have this text in here, you can, you can look at it more closely later, what he essentially says is that that becomes a kind of theological or spiritual consciousness of God in the present tense. And that then I become aware of God as eternally creating the world anew, creating this earth anew. When I have past tense consciousness of God, yatsar, Right? He, he playfully says, that's, that's kind of when I'm attached most to my physicality, right? because, because the asher yatsar bracha is the, is the blessing that is said uh, right after using the bathroom, traditionally. Right? So you, when you're most cognizant of your physicality, you say, God, God who fashioned the body, and thank you for fashioning the body in such a way that it can function properly and it's an amazing blessing... But what he says there is that then you're, you're conscious of your thisness, you're conscious of your physicalness, your physicality. And when you're in a state of yotzer consciousness, then you're in a state of I'm standing fully in the presence of the divine sacred. And I'm aware that in this natural world all around me that God created, God is continuing to create it in every single moment. The moment that I'm there walking on the trails, in Sedona or wherever, the moment when I'm walking in the, in the wild or when I'm encountering the ordinary elements of reality, as I, of the mundane realities I experience in day to, moment to moment, God is creating that world again in that moment and is infusing that moment with energy, with shefa, as the mystics would say, um, such that I become aware of God um, always and forever creating the world and constantly bringing the world into being. So I'm mindful of the of uh of the time how are we how are we doing with time uh, Ravishmouli? Uh great yeah.
3: Uh, we have including questions about what it's
1: on. Okay, right. So so, so um so let me so let me just let me just, uh, uh, I'll just then, then we can have some 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 further discussion uh, about this. Just to paraphrase one, one other one other text for you that you can look at more closely on your own, which is which is next to. Oh, um, well, you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm gonna I'm going I'm gonna paraphrase one, one other one other piece for you because it's it's such a great uh, it's such a great uh, uh, mystical play. On, um, on language that that it kind of awakens us i think to a to a powerful realization and that's that's on page 10 of the packet where he says uh, and this is from the Degel Machane Ephraim who's uh, Moshe Chaim Ephraim of Sudilkov, the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov and and he says and here he's building on some older traditions as well he he, he, he notices that the gematria, right, this is the numerical symbolism, right, each letter has a numerical value added up, then you can correlate this word to that word, if it has the same, right, so it was a favorite um, interpretive tool of opening up connections between words, right, playfully. So the powerful one in this context is he says, what is the, what is the gematria of Elohim? It is Hateva. The natural or the nature right, which is um, enormously uh, um, so, the, so so where he goes with this is to say that um, that that ultimately to, ultimately the realization is that the natural world is infused with divinity, that actually the natural world is part of. The total flux and unity uh, of of God, right? So this was so this was a this was a, a core way in which the Hasidic mystics, both the Degomach and Ephraim, uh, Rabbi Nachman of, uh, of Bratslav, the Kiddushat Levi, Leitz of Berditchev, and also another text that I have in here of uh, Menachem Nachum Twersky of Chernobyl, uh, before Chernobyl was known for um, for uh, for other things The the the, te- the teacher whose teachings are collected in the Ma'orinaim, Naim, essentially to say that God's presence is found in everything in this world. And that when I come to the realization of that, inf- this, that infusion of God, then I am in a state of, of um, tohu vavohu. Right? Tohu vavohu, for that mystic, for the maori Naim, is to say... That a person becomes toheh, becomes becomes, um, stunned or in a state of wonderment and mystery at the fact shebohu, that God is in the person themselves, is in the natural world. It's a play on tohu vavohu that I achieve this state of wonderment at realizing God's presence in everything, in the natural and in my own natural body. Um, so I want to leave some time for some for some further discussion. So how so how um, how do you bring the strands of this uh, together? Are there some questions that have been <clears throat> stirred for you in this in in this study that you'd like to that you'd like to raise uh, now?
4: I, I keep thinking of Spinoza
3: with this, his pantheistic ideas and saying that God is in everything. Isn't that, isn't that what I said?
1: Um, yes. Uh, of, of, now, you know, Spinoza. Spinoza exists within a long, um, a long chain of both direct and indirect traditions of reflections on pantheism and panentheism. And for me, pantheism and panentheism are, are um, are not uh, are not negatives, right? Even though even though Spinoza got into some trouble um, for ideas that actually are found in in Kabbalah as well, right, and those, and, those rever- and those great rabbinic figures revered Kabbalah, right, so, it's, so it, it, seems, it seems to have been that he got in trouble more for his treatment of the, treatment of the Bible in certain kinds of ways rather than, than, than his so-called pantheistic theology, but you're absolutely right that Spinoza has a lot in common with a lot of these mystics in the sense that actually God is the great rhythm of nature. Uh, but the, the Kabbalists would, t- would, would say it a little bit differently. They would say that nature, as we perceive it, is part of the larger universal being and oneness that is divinity. Please. Uh,
3: it, it seems to me that one, one thread that might tie a lot of this together is that there are uh, two orders or, or two dimensions of creation, one uh, directly by God and God created uh, the other indirectly through God, and man-created. Mm. And there seems to be a warning here uh, that we should uh, try to emphasize and, and as much as possible visit the direct creation of God and, uh, because that will give us strength. And the more we, we perhaps ignore that, and get lost in our own creations, industrialization, technology, etc., uh, the, 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 <clears throat> the weaker we will get. Uh, and it, there doesn't seem to be a prohibition against that, but just somewhat of a warning not to lose touch with nature, with, with the primary order of
1: I think it's a a very interesting point. I mean, a a lot of these mystics that we're talking about were uh, were living in a pre-industrial time. Um, However, um, if you look at if you look at Heschel in particular, um, right, as a as a latter-day mystic, his book *The Sabbath*, right, which is one of his most famous and influential books, which is heavily influenced by by Kabbalah and, and Hasidism though he barely says so but he, it's because in some ways he thought of himself as a Hasidic rabbi um, specifically rails against the dangers of technology and of and of being overtaken by industrialization and and by and by how we become obsessed with with what we can do and what we can create, and and the Shabbat is a time for being at peace with the divine creation and so forth. So I think, I think that that speaks very directly to your to your point. Um, he he, sp- he specifically makes that point, um, right? And I think that that's also because he was li- he was li- it was written at a time it was, it was at, right at mid-century, right? Right around ni- 1950 or so, right? So it was he, that was particularly on his mind, right? It was the, it was the question of 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 how of how we of how we as human beings become become um, inflated with the importance of our own our own ability to create things, right? And so the Shabbat is a time to step back from that, he says, right, and be aware of of uh, of God's world. And
3: that was
1: Rabbi. <clears throat> That's Abraham Joshua Heschel, and the book is called The Sabbath.
5: Please. Um, it's not a question; is more just an observation. The mystic who looks to see God in the blue, wherever that blue may be, seems to provide an an invitation to find God in all things. That I think is very easy to live our lives and ignore where divine might be. And I think this was such a beautiful example that you shared. To just simply say, look at the sky, or look at the mountain, or look at the tree, what interpretation can you find? Because really, I feel like what, what the text was was a midrash. So someone basically looking at something in nature and being like, I'm going to put these pieces together, and this is going to be the piece of Torah that, that allows me to move in the world feeling more connected to God. So when do we do this? When do we give ourselves the opportunity? to go, even as you started off by saying, outside of our tradition enough to just look at nature and say, how do we commune with God and just speak to God? Mm. Um, I just feel like the mystic becomes the, more of an artist and a poet than um, I think is often given credit for in a really healthy, healthy spiritual
1: way. Um, I, yeah, I think that's beautiful. I, I, I very much agree with it. And, and I think that it's true that the process of creativity... Um, that's reflected let's say in that Isaac of Akko example right is it is a kind of mystical midrashic um, free association right it's it's not really completely free association it's kind of a stream of consciousness with certain structures right that I when I see when I think of this it brings into mind this web of meanings for him right Um, but it's true he's he's kind of riffing off his experience, right? I saw blue and that made me think of T'chelet and T'chelet is like this and so on and so forth, right? So it's, it's how, it's how his, his mystic mind works. Um, but I think, uh, as you said, as we were talking about before, I think that in some ways, mystical consciousness and mystical creativity is far more akin to the the, the art of the poet the art of the poet um, than it is to right, the the analytics of the philosopher of the scientist and so forth. It's a, it's a different kind of thinking. It's not to say that, that that they're completely divided and separate, but it's but it's 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 more akin to to an attempt to use language to point to another dimension of of consciousness, which which for the mystic in particular, and often for many poets. Is, is an opening into a, a, a sacred wonder, right? Or sacred wonderment. Um, it seems like there's a, there's
5: a permission. Because the permission
1: yes. is, is given to each of us yes.
5: to be able to look at the world and say, I can yeah. create something out. I can, I can make meaning. I can find something deeper than the surface level that yeah. we just live so yeah. much of our life on. Yeah. Um, it's such an important reminder that we each, have the ability to, in whatever term, whatever right.
1: vernacular we have, to be able to do that. And that's yes. Really important. Yes, I think I think it's absolutely true, right? And, and whether it's whether it's the 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 um, associations of of this of this sense of solitude, right? That I am able to go out, strike out on my own, right? I'm able to to go to go right, as, as as Emerson said in the first part, right? Don't don't just rely on what you've been given. Don't just rely on tradition. It's not, not to, you know, give tradition too bad a rap, but it's, but don't, but don't just say, okay, well, you know, I have, I have the language of the Sidur, I have, I can, you know, you know, I have the tradition. I don't need to necessarily be doing this for my, so he's saying that, that we too can have a direct revelation, right? Each one of, each one of us, right? And, and when, when Nachman is talking about the Hitzbodudut that each Hasid, that each person is supposed to do, it is it is a very much an individual um, type of experience right in the sense that each person needs to go out into that wilderness themselves right or at least to take the time to as you as you noted right as isaac of Akko says right i was wandering and i noticed right so what will be your moments of i was wandering and i noticed right what will be your moments of of here tonight we're talking about specifically about nature right where where will you take the time to right to stop and smell the roses as it were or or more generally to stop and allow the world around you to be a portal into the numinous a portal into spiritual presence right so that and that's and that's part of the significance of this nexus right is that it's it's not just looking at, at nature and saying, wow, that's really beautiful, and, and I can appreciate that it that, that it's, has beauty, right? And that's true. But the, the next order question as it relates to this kind of thinking is how does that bring me closer to God, right? How does that bring me closer to my spiritual center? How does that open my soul? How does that open my heart in... A new, in a new way, right? How will I look at the world? And, and I think that in, when we sense the natural, right, it, it, can, also, it can mean the, the whole of our, of our ordinary existence in this world. How can we discover new reverberations of the mystery, of the secret, right? I saw the secret within. How will you encounter the world with a different, with the eye of spiritual sight, with the eye of seeing the hidden beneath the the surface, and to try to see where are the openings into the sacred in your lives, in your life? Where are the openings into the sacred as you look around this world, right? And Arizona is an awfully wonderful place to do that. Why why is standing before nature so, this is a question we, we raised at the beginning, Why is standing before nature often so spiritually powerful? Why does it fill us with something, some kind of intangible energy which you feel very powerfully in certain places, especially a place like Sedona? Because you're allowing your heart to be opened to the fullness of divine energy, in the Jewish conception of it, as as it fills You become part and particle of God, as Emerson says. You You become attuned to the currents of the universal being, which is God, flowing through you like the breath of the shofar blower flows through the shofar. And then you become the vessel by which a new music and a new sound will enter the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.